Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you this evening for our opportunity together to look in the Word of God. We ask that you would grant us understanding of the book of Acts as we go through it. We could gather the, the emphasis and importance of how the gospel went forward in the beginning and the start of the mission in Acts 2 and continues through. We might see things there that will be helpful to us as we examine our own lives and uh, our own priorities, that we might have a greater sense of uh, dedication and uh, motivation to serve you in the days ahead. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're looking at page uh, 21 about in our uh, notes. We're in Acts chapter 17. Paul was at Philippi, you remember, in Acts chapter 16, and then he goes in Acts chapter 17 to Thessalonica, and then on to Berea in Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 15, which we sort of looked at mostly last time. Paul goes to Berea. And he has a very positive ministry there. There's not much said about Berea. Um, it says that, uh, at first at least, uh, the Bereans were more noble, you remember, than those in Thessalonica because they received the message with great eagerness. They examined the scriptures every day, verse 11, to see if what Paul said was true. Many believed, but then there was a problem again with these Jews who came. So there were these Jews who were constantly following Paul from place to place because Paul was, in effect, you remember, saying that Gentiles can come to Christ, be right with God, apart from Judaism. This was, this was a real problem for Judaism. Um, Paul was, in a sense, saying... The law is no longer binding on these Gentiles. They don't have to go to the temple. They don't have to offer sacrifices. He was really, you know, by his ministry and accepting these Gentiles, he was saying, Judaism, the Jewish religion of the Old Testament is gone. It's passed away. And it had. But uh, it took some time for that to be fully recognized. So Paul is hounded by these Jews, verse 13, Jews in Thessalonica, learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there to agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. So remember we talked about that. They sent Paul to the coast. We don't know exactly what that means. It says they sent Paul to the coast. Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So um, it may be that Paul went to the coast and went to Athens by ship because it says he went to the coast. Some people think that, well, he went to the coast, but that was just to throw them off, and then he went by land route. He could have gone by land route or by sea route down to Athens, but... The text doesn't tell us how he got down to Athens. I've just drawn it there as a sea route. Uh, as I mentioned on the top of page 21 there, 
Those who escorted Paul to Athens may have provided lodging for Paul with some of their relatives. That would explain how Silas and Timothy were able to locate Paul in Athens later on. From the account in Acts, it would appear that Paul was not joined by Silas and Timothy until he got to 1 Corinthians. Excuse me, he got to 1 Corinthians. He got to Corinth. <laughs> I'm thinking ahead about this next slide here. <laughs> um, it's 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. It is 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> According to the president, right? Silas and Timothy until he got to Corinth, but this is not the case. Now, what I'm saying here is a little confusing, I know, but remember it says here in Acts chapter 17 and verse 14, the believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Then Paul goes to Athens, verse 16, while Paul was in Athens, and we get the whole Ministry of Paul in Athens, finishing up chapter 17. There's no record of of, of Silas and Timothy joining him. Chapter 18, after this, Paul left Athens. So it appears like Paul was at Athens by himself, because there's no mention in Acts. As far as we know, Silas and Timothy are still in Berea. And we keep on reading in Acts chapter 18. There he met a Jew named Aquila and his wife named Priscilla. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia. Well, that's Berea, you'd think. So, from the account in Acts, it looks like that Paul went to Athens, had a ministry in Athens by himself, and then he goes on to Corinth, and as Acts 18 says, he was joined by Silas and Timothy. But from what we read in the Thessalonian epistles, this is not exactly right. Paul writes the Thessalonian epistles when he gets to Corinth in Acts chapter 18. And he tells us there, in uh, in 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 2, he says, So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. I thought you were by yourself, Paul. No, he wasn't by himself in Athens. Apparently, Silas and Timothy did join him in Athens because it says, we sent Timothy who is our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you. So, apparently what really happens here is that Paul goes to Athens, he is joined by Silas and Timothy and then he sends them back. He sends them back because it says here, Uh, we sent Timothy, who is our brother, to Thessalonica. So that's what I say here. According to 1 Thessalonians 3.1, Silas and Timothy rejoined Paul at Athens because it says, we thought it best to be left by ourselves, by myself, because I had somebody with me, apparently Silas and Timothy, and then we sent Timothy from Athens to you at Thessalonica. So I say here, Timothy was then sent to Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 3.2. Apparently, Silas was sent to Macedonia because it says in Acts 18.5, Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, possibly Philippi. Paul went on to Corinth and was joined by Silas and Timothy in, uh, at Acts 18.5. So, 
that that looks like what's really happening. Remember, Luke doesn't always tell us every detail, every incident. So it looks like Paul goes to Athens. It looks like he's joined there uh, by Silas and Timothy. Then they're sent back to, to check on the churches at Philippi, maybe. Certainly Thessalonica, we know from what Paul says there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. So... Uh, that's the end of Paul's ministry at Berea. Short, very short here, at least as the book of Acts gives it. And then we find Paul at Athens, Acts 17, 16 through 34. Paul at Athens. We saw that in verse 15. Paul was brought to Athens. Verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them... In Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So Athens, uh, as we see on the map here, uh, is about 195 miles south of Berea here. That gives us approximate distance. Um, Athens is located on this chart here, as you can see, in the province of Achaia. So you see this blue line here. This is the province of Achaia. And over here is the province of Macedonia. So Berea, Thessalonica, Philippi are in the province of Macedonia. And Athens and Corinth are in a different Roman province, the province of Achaia. Uh, it became a senatorial province in AD 44 with Corinth as its capital. Remember we said the Romans created two basic types of provinces. They created what they call senatorial provinces, which was ruled by someone of the senatorial class. Remember, the Romans had classes of people. They had senatorial class, then equestrian class, free people. They had, and so you were born into a certain class, you stayed in that class. So the, the aristocrats were the senatorial class. So this was a senatorial province. The other provinces were imperial provinces. They were the more unruly provinces, like Judea, Syria. So this is a senatorial province, and this is a fairly quiet province where you normally wouldn't have any a Roman legion stationed at this point here. Um, it was uh, in AD 44, it was made this senatorial province. It, it, its capital was Athens, which was named for the goddess Athena. It reached its height of its glory in the 5th century B.C., so, you know, 500 years before Paul. When the Parthenon, numerous temples and other splendid buildings were built. Literature, philosophy, science, and rhetoric flourished, and Athens attracted intellectuals from all over the world. Politically, it became a democracy. Although Athens declined politically after this time, it still retained its importance culturally and intellectually. It was the home of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, who founded the Epicureans, Zeno, who founded the Stoics. Rome conquered Athens in AD 146, but Athens remained a free city with her own political institutions. So this was, remember, this was the empire of Alexander the Great in 300 B.C., but in the 2nd century B.C., in particularly here, 146, in this, uh, this time, the Romans came in and took over conquered all this area. They totally destroyed Corinth as an example because the Greeks resisted the Romans. 
And so to show Roman power and show what happens when you resist, they just leveled Corinth. But they didn't destroy Athens at all. And so it remained relatively free. They created sort of a free city, I say here. It, by Paul's time, Athens had declined both in wealth and importance, but it had many temples dedicated to the worship of the Greek pantheon of deities. It was a very pagan city. Paul would, of course, be very repulsed by all the idolatry and explains why it says in our text he was greatly distressed when he saw the city full of idols. So here's a panoramic view of Athens today. Here's ancient Athens right here with the Parthenon and everything. We'll get some close-ups here. The Acropolis. So here's one of the hills, the Acropolis. And here's the Parthenon up on the Acropolis here. This is from uh, the Kavadas, another hill. So we're looking from another hill. We're looking from this hill down the Parthenon here. Now there's other hills there. But there's the Parthenon. So there's the Parthenon. Well, the Parthenon is, was a temple, and it was also a municipal building. So it was a temple to Athena, the goddess Athena. You came there and worshipped Athena. It was, it was also the treasury for Athens, too, so it held a lot of gold. And over the years, various people uh, conquered Athens, the Turks did, and that's why it's in sort of decay, because it was used at one time as an armory to store weapons and munitions, and people fired shots at it and all this kind of stuff. So it's, it's been blown up, and, and they have, they've had a big restoration project to try to restore some of it. But a lot of other temples were, were uh, modeled on the Parthenon, the design of it and so forth. There is the statue of Athena that used to be, and according to historians, according to the Greek Greek history, there was a gold statue of Athena, the Greek, the patron goddess of Athens, that was covered with gold. Of course, it's totally gone, and all that now. Here's Athens from Mars Hill. We'll see about Mars Hill or or the Areopagus, the Hill of Ares. Now it's looking down to the Forum. So we're looking from one of the hills. The Parthenon is back here, back over here, and we're on Mars here. We're looking down. So these cities had a Forum. Here's the Stoa of Adalus. So this is uh, this is a reconstructed building. So this Forum would have had all kinds of buildings like that. The Stoa building, that is, these columns and so forth. It's now uh, it's now a uh, kind of a shopping mall there now but so the, this this whole forum this rectangle would have had all these kind of beautiful buildings and uh, that's been a restoration of the Stoa of Atlas there um, so here's the uh, Athens Agora um, from Mars Hill and so forth and we'll look a little longer at that in a second here 
So, verse 17, so he reasoned, that is Paul, in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. We've seen this, right? Synagogue, Jews, God-fearing, these God-fearers, as well as in the marketplace, down here in the forum, the marketplace, day by day with those who happen to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Okay, who are these people? As I say here on page 21, the Epicureanism and Stoicism were the chief philosophies in Paul's day. Epicurus, who is founded Epicureanism, believed that the world and everything in it was made up of chance combinations of tiny indivisible atoms. Though gods exist, they are far away and have no interest in human affairs. Of course, this contradicts the normal Greek religion of Mount Olympus and all that kind of thing, but they just sort of allegorized that away. So the the Epicureans and the Stoics, they just sort of looked upon that as sort of an allegory, and they they didn't treat it as being real in their day, uh, and so forth. So the the gods did not create the world, it evolved out of chaos, We must therefore get rid uh, rid ourselves of all superstitions and fear of death. Epicurus, who suffered from illness of the stomach and kidneys, taught that man should pursue sweetness and tranquility. True happiness consists in a life free from pain, lived in quiet obscurity, surrounded by friends. Epicurus himself was far from being a hedonist who lived for the pleasures of the flesh. He remarked that the pleasures of sex never profited a man, and he's lucky if they do him no harm. Now, he's... We think about Epicureanism, we think about lasciviousness and, and, and all this kind of stuff. Well, some of his followers did follow that path. There's no question that later Epicureans were like that. But Epicurus himself just believed that we should live quietly in obscurity, surrounded by our friends, and so forth. He, he, uh, when, teaching, when his teachings reached Rome, the Senate banned two Epicurean philosophers in 173 for teaching people to pursue, pursue pleasures. The Epicureans did not believe in immortality, and they would consider the idea of a resurrection ridiculous. At death, they believed the atoms which make up a person merely disintegrate to reform again. An Epicurean epitaph reads, I was not, I was, I am not, I do not care. Then there's the Stoics. Paul found there in the marketplace a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers that he debated with. The Stoics were founded by Zeno. He was the founder of Stoicism. The philosophy takes its name from the painted porch, or the Stoa, which is a colonnade or portico, located in the Agora, the marketplace of Athens, where Zeno taught. His teachings focused on living harmoniously with nature and emphasized humanity's rational abilities and individual self-sufficiency. The Stoics were pantheists, everything's God, believing that the ultimate stuff of the universe is divine and that God has no personality and is therefore incapable of knowledge, love, or providential acts. According to Zeno, the goal of life is virtue. Stoicism had no personal immortality. The Stoics taught that only one thing is intrinsically good virtue. Man's duty is to live according to the will of an impersonal God. Our task is to play as best we can the role we have been given. The truly virtuous person will eliminate all passions and emotion from his life until he reaches the point that nothing troubles or bothers him. When one died, 
his divine part went back into the hole. So we can see where we get our idea. We say someone is rather stoic. They're just bland. They're, you know, they don't have any emotions and so forth. Well, that was the idea of Stoicism. Eliminate these emotions. Eliminate these things. Be at peace. Strive for virtue. Strive to do your best. Well, Paul is debating with them, and they say, what is this babbler trying to say? As I say here, this, this term babbler refers to a person who picks up pieces of information from here and there and passes them off as he as if he knows what he's talking about. The, the Greek word there, you've probably heard people say it's a seed picker. So it's they're saying this is just like a little bird that comes along, picks up some little information, and he just, you know, he's trying to impress people. You know, he picks up information here and he passes it off, picks up. And so this Paul is just some guy who's gotten some truth here or something here, and he's just trying to impress people. He's just a babbler. What is this babbler trying to say? So they're disparaging him. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, one thing that may be happening here is they may have been thought, they may have thought when Paul talked about the resurrection, that he was talking about a god or a goddess. Um, the Greek word for resurrection is uh, Anastasis. You know, we get like Anastasia, a woman's name from there. In Greek, this is a feminine term. So a feminine, feminine term. Greek nouns have gender. So Paul's talking about the resurrection. He's talking about Jesus. Okay, that's a masculine, that's a man. And Anastasis. The, the reason why this might be true is because the Greeks couldn't conceive of the idea of a resurrection. The Greeks didn't believe in any sort of resurrection. It was just totally foreign to them. Because when you died, you wanted to get rid of this body. You didn't want it raised up. Almost every Greek philosophy believed that the body is the prison house of the soul. The body is the prison house of the soul. And the reason we do bad things is because of our bodies. So the reason people are evil is because they have a body. And that body is what influences them to do evil things. Now that's contrary to Christian thinking. It's not our bodies that are problems. It's our sinful natures which are part of our immaterial being, not our bodies. But the Greeks thought the body is the prison house of the soul, so when you die you become a disembodied spirit. You don't want to get that body back. That's a prison. So you don't want that. So it may be that they just couldn't conceive that Paul would really be saying there's going to be a physical resurrection. Why would you want that? Well, of course, we know it's a glorified body, you know, and we understand all that. But we can see where they could be confused about that. So he may have been thinking of Jesus as a god and Anastasis as his consort, because most male gods had, had a female consort in the ancient world. So, uh, they, uh, verse 19, Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. Areopagus. Uh, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? As I say here on page um, 
22, Areopagus literally means the hill of Mars. So the King James says, remember, they, they brought him to Mars Hill. If you remember the King James, they took him to Mars Hill. So Mars is Latin and Ares is Greek. Ares is the Greek form of Mar- the god Mars. Well, the Greek, the Greek god is Ares. So uh, Areopagus means the hill of Mars. So it's just like the King James has Mars Hill. So uh, as I say here, there's debate as to whether Luke is referring here and in verse 22 to Paul being brought to a physical location in Athens. The King James talks about Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill. Because they say in verse 20, you're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we'd like to know what you what they mean. Verse 21, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and about and listening to the latest ideas. So then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, see how the NIV's got that translated. They've got the meeting of the Areopagus. The King James has it. He's standing in the midst of Mars Hill. It sounds, it sounds like he's standing in a physical location. So when we look at this location, here's, the, here's Athens. Here's the actual physical location looking down on Mars Hill from the, from the Acropolis. And you can see the actual physical location there. Um, as I say here on uh, the notes here, um, so there's a debate of whether Paul, we're talking about a physical location or to the council which originally met on the hill of Ares. So are they taking Paul to a physical location or does Areopagus just mean the council? As I say here, most favor the latter, a council. The NIV. The NIV says here, um, Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus. They're translating it as though Paul is at a meeting of the Council of, of, of Athens, the Areopagus here, the Council of Areopagus. Uh, most favor the latter, that is, a member, because of verse 34. If you know, look later on in verse 34, it says, Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus. Well, that means a member of the council. So clearly, Paul was at the council because a member of the council believed. Plus, the reference to Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus sounds odd if the reference is to a hill. So, most people think that Paul, this 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 council, got its name from the hill, and so it's called the Council of the Areopagus because it may have originally met here. It may have met there or near there during Paul's time. We don't know. People debate about where exactly, but we're probably talking about they took Paul. The idea is they took Paul to this council. This council uh, was the chief judicial body of the city. This was the chief judicial body. And they exercised jurisdiction in matters of religion and education. So if you wanted to come into the city and start a class, start a school, you had to get the approval of the Areopagus. If you were preaching some religion or teaching something, you had to get the approval of the council, the Areopagus. And so apparently that's what they're doing here. And uh, they approved new gods into the pantheon. We know that. So... Uh, 
Apparently that's what's going on. Well, we see then that Paul addresses the council in verses 22 through 31. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Very religious. I say here on the bottom page 22, the Greek word used here can be used in the positive sense of religious, like the NIV, ESV, New American Standard, or in a derogatory sense, like the King James seems to be somewhat derogatory. I see that you're very superstitious. You're just a bunch of superstitious idiots. You know, it's, it's sort of derogatory in that sense. Uh, and people debate that. I, I think the context favors you're probably the positive. It's, it's unlikely that Paul's going to walk in the council and say, I see that you're just a bunch of superstitious idiots. That's not exactly the way to get a hearing for what you want to say. So he's probably just saying, oh, I, you're, you're, you're religious people. You know, I see you're, let me, let me tell you a little bit, because I see that you're, you're really religious people. So he's probably trying to gain a hearing. For I walked, verse 23, around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. I say here, Paul does not mean that the Athenians are actually worshiping the true God. Their idol to the unknown God simply opens the door for Paul to explain the one true God of creation here. You've got this description to an unknown God. I'm going to tell you who the true God really is. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands like you see all around Athens. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. He doesn't need a bunch of priests and so forth like you have. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everyone else. He doesn't have to be fed and brought food to eat and so forth like that. Uh, from one man he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked that their appointed times in history and boundaries of their lands. Now, as I say, this is especially directed towards the Epicureans who denied that God had any role in the affairs of men. This is sort of like deism later on, you know, in America we think about deism. God may be out there, but he doesn't have any, he doesn't do anything. He's, he may have created the universe, but that he just left it alone. And he doesn't, he doesn't have any control. He doesn't in, involve human affairs. But Paul says, he gives life and breath to everyone. From one man he made all nations. They should inhabit the earth. And he marked out the appointed times in history and boundaries. So God is involved in human history. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him, reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So he quotes here from Epimenides and Eratus here, some of their own poets. Verse 29. Um, Therefore, since we are God's offspring... We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, these idols that he sees all over, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God, 
overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. As I say here, this overlooked is probably in the sense of 1416. In the past, Paul says he let all nations go their own way. God didn't judge idolatry as harshly as he might have. But now with the coming of Christ, God is in a special sense calling men to repent, as he'll say in verse 31. Um, So, uh, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now, this speech has raised a lot of questions because what is Paul doing here? You know, he doesn't... Now, one of the problems here is, of course... We have just a, probably maybe a condensation. Remember, we talked about these speeches and acts. Luke may not give us every word that was said, so we have sometimes just a summary, so we don't know. But as, notice what I say here. Paul never quotes scripture in his speech at the Areopagus. However, it should be noted that before the confrontation at the Areopagus began, Paul had already been preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So he had been preaching the gospel there talking about Jesus, his death, his resurrection from the dead. Thus, his address before the Areopagus was not presented in a vacuum. Although Paul did not quote from the Old Testament, he was absolutely true to the biblical message. 23 allusions to the Old Testament in verses 24 through 31. Paul, one, declared that the God of the Christianity was the creator and that the Lord of the, wor- and Lord of the world and of mankind in verses 24 through 26. He declared the nearness and thus the accessibility of God to mankind, verses 27 and 28. He declared the utter ignorance of idolatry in verse 29. He announced that his God would someday judge all men through that resurrected men whom Paul had previously named as Jesus, verse 18, you remember? And here he says in verse 31, he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he's been talking about Jesus, remember? back there in verse 18. Uh, Paul's quotation of the Greek poets, Epimenides and Eratus, was done to illustrate points of formal agreement with God's revealed truth, or we might say common grace here. So we just have kind of a summary here. Paul is speaking to these intellectual men and showing the futility of their idolatry, challenging this this nonsense that they're believing. Now, he doesn't get too far, apparently, because verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, because he says in verse 31, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Well, it can't be a mistake now. Back then when he talked about Anastasis, They thought that might just be the consort of Jesus, just might be a female goddess. But now it's pretty clear. Paul actually believes that someone has been raised bodily from the dead. Uh, When they heard this, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. As I say here, most Greeks, except the Epicureans, believed at least in a limited immortality of the soul, but not a bodily resurrection. 
Remember, I said the body was looked upon as evil. It was the prison house of the soul. And so when Paul gets to the resurrection of the dead here, he's going to raise him from the dead. They begin to sneer. Well, this is this is utter nonsense. You know, who, what idiot would believe in that? We know that's wrong. But obviously, God was working in the hearts of some people here because it says we want to hear you. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. So they had enough gospel. Paul had talked about Jesus before. And now he had, they have the gospel sufficient to believe. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus. So a person in the council. Also a woman named Damaris. And a number of others believed. I mean, it's hard to speculate what happens here because... It doesn't talk about any church established, does it? It doesn't say Paul moves on here and he goes to Corinth and Luke doesn't tell us whether there was a church established or not. We just don't we just don't have any details here on that particular thing. That takes us to Paul at Corinth in Acts chapter eighteen, verses one through seventeen. We see his arrival at Corinth. He goes from Athens to Corinth. Now, he could have taken a land route there, or he could have taken a ship. I don't, the, the text doesn't tell us how he got from Athens. He could have sailed over there, or he could have taken a ship. We just don't know how he got over there. Um, as I say here in verse 1, on top of page 24, Paul may have left Athens because the council refused to give him permission to preach and teach there. Remember, they, they approved anybody who came in and taught religion or anything like that. They may have said, Paul, you can't preach here or teach here. And so Paul may have decided, for whatever reasons, to go on to Corinth here. And he does. goes on to Corinth. As I say here on the top of page 24, Corinth is about 40 miles from Athens, approximately here. It's one of the oldest Greek cities, but was destroyed by the Romans in 146. A hundred years later, in 46 BC, Julius Caesar had the city rebuilt as a Roman colony. And in 27 BC, Augustus made it the capital of the province of Achaia. So, remember, this is the province of Achaia here. And so, in 46 B.C., Julius Caesar has it rebuilt. And in 27, the first real emperor, Augustus, makes it the capital of the province of Achaia. Uh, Because of its location, it was the center of commerce between the mainland and the southern peninsula, as well as trade between Asia and Italy. So what I'm saying here is, because of its strategic location, anything coming from the peninsula here, the Peloponnesus here, there's this, there's a piece of land right here, so this is not an island, so it's a peninsula. So any, anything going south here comes through Corinth. And also travel uh, coming from Egypt, coming from Palestine, coming this way, they often stopped here at Corinth. So it commanded the trade in both ways. We'll see how that works here in just a second. So there's a better little map of Corinth. Probably should have showed you this earlier. So there's, we talked about, I don't know if we talked about the Delphic Oracle. There's Delphi. Here's Olympia, where the Olympic Games were held. 
Um, show you some more maps here, a better map. So here's Corinth right here. Here's Corinth had some suburbs. So here's Corinth, the main city. Here's Lechium. Different ways to spell this thing, but there's a port here that goes out to the Corinthian Gulf, as we'll see. And then there's a port, Sincrea, that goes out to the Aegean. Here's Isthmia, which is another suburb. And uh, you can see there's a canal through there today. It's been cut through. So here's what this looks like. Here's Isthmia, a suburb. Chroma, here's Sincrea. Lechium, here's Corinth. So uh, you've got the Corinthian Gulf over here. You've got the Aegean out here. And Corinth has this strategic position. This line here is where the canal is today. There's a canal cut through there. Yes? When was that canal built? It was built in the uh, 20th century, basically. Completed, roughly completed in the 20th century. Started in the 19th century. but Actually, Nero tried to start it a canal through there, but didn't get done. So as we look at the geography here again, we can see what's called Acro-Corinth, or the Hill of Corinth, where uh, the temple of Aphrodite would have been up here. And uh, let's see. So uh, this photo is we're looking, we're looking uh, from the north, we're looking sort of southwest in that uh, picture there. Um, so we're here in the north, we're looking down, and there is Sincrea here. Uh, there's Lechium there, I mean, here's the, here's the canal here. So we're looking that way. So there's, the, there's, the, there's this isthmus here. This would be Athens over here, Corinth is this way. And so here is the Corinthian Gulf over here, and here's the Aegean over here. So you've got these two ports. Corinth is down here. How long will that canal be? Uh, I'm not sure. I've forgotten how long it is. I think as if I have a sign. There it is today. There it is today. How long does that look? <laughs> Looks like it can't be more than five miles, I'd say. Would you? Five or ten miles? Yeah, I wouldn't think it's that long. I wouldn't think it's more about five miles. I don't know. Five miles at the most. Go back to your main map. Does yeah. it? Oh, yeah, there it go. It says ten kilometers, maybe about ten kilometers, which would be about eight miles. 6.2 miles. 6.2 miles? Okay. 6.4 miles. So there it is. It's four miles. What? According to Wikipedia, it's four miles. Ten kilometers can't be four miles. It's got to be six. Six point four kilometers. Six point. Oh. In Wikipedia. Ten point. Ten point four. Okay. Well, ten. This is ten kilometers. It's long. Yeah. Eight clicks is five miles. See, Wikipedia's not. Well, on the speedometer, when you're doing sixty, some you're doing a hundred kilometers per hour, right? Yeah, six point. Yeah, fifty yeah. is eighty, so five is eighty. Yeah, so it's so it's about six miles. Four miles. Says here it's four miles, and 
Four miles. Oh, the, the canal's only four. Well, that looks about right. That's it's about like the Mackinac Bridge. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. It's only 70 feet wide. I'm sorry, I asked. Well, I've read that it's... <laughs> <laughs> I, I've read that it's... <laughs> you go for the can of worms. I've read that it's too narrow to get big ships through there now. It's, 70 feet. Yeah, 70 feet is not wide enough for these larger tankers today. So that doesn't... So it doesn't work. It works. You can see it's not too wide. Wow, so what th- what did they do in ancient times? In ancient times. Probably. Oh, in ancient times, they had a thing called the Diocles, which ran right about where the canal is. And they would unload ships on one side at Sincrea, small ships, unload them, put them on wagons and other things, take them along, and reload them on the other side. I mean, it seems it seems like a strange thing to do. But the reason is because, I don't want to go back to one of those photos, but they didn't. The, the ancient sailors didn't like to sail in the open seas. They didn't want to sail down there in the Aegean and the Mediterranean. So they would sail, they would sail up to here, to Corinth, and then this is the path of Diocles here, and they would oftentimes... Now, I've read different things. They say that small ships, they would actually put, uh, they would have like uh, logs and actually try to roll them along. Other times they would unload them and reload here. This was just so that they could avoid the, 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 the sailing out in the Mediterranean in the open sea. Remember what happened to Paul when he goes out there in Acts 27? He gets on storm. <clears throat> There's no weather forecasting. So when you go out... When you go out here and sail in the open sea, you don't know what's coming. You don't know what kind of storm is out there. They're coming towards you. And Paul didn't know. And his, no. So, and here is the Corinthian excavations from there. So let's go on here. I mentioned a couple of things. It says, uh, the population uh, of Paul's day was around 100,000. This is just an estimate. We're not sure about that. Most of whom were slaves, we're told making it the largest city in Roman Greece. Every two years, the Isthmian Games, second in attendance and splintered to the Olympic Games, were held at Corinth. They were probably observed in AD 51 during Paul's visit. Now, we know exactly when Paul was there because it says, we know pretty close when Paul was there, because later on we're told that Paul is brought in verse 12 before a proconsul named Gallio. And we know all about this man. He's a well-known Roman in history. And we know that he he became proconsul in July of AD 51. So here's the main date in the book of Acts that we know when we start talking about when I kept saying, well, Paul wrote this epistle then, he wrote this, and he was here in 46. This is how we know a lot of this. Because we know exactly when he became proconsul. And many people think that when he became proconsul, they decided to, okay, let's get this guy Paul up before the new proconsul and see if we can get him done away with because this new proconsul's come in and we can influence him and so forth. So it's pretty clear that Paul was in Corinth from AD 50 to 52. We know he was there a year and a half. And so 50, 50 to 52... 
And so, um, in AD 51, they had the Isthmian Games. We talked about the Olympic Games. Isthmia is a pro, is a little suburb there, but they had them every two years. And when people came there, there weren't any holiday inns to stay in. They stayed in tents. And people can imagine things. Remember here in Acts chapter 18, it says, Paul stays with Priscilla and Aquila. Why? Because they're tent makers. So you could imagine, you know, that would be a good business there in AD 51, making these tents for people to stay in for the Isthmian Games. Um, Nero, the Emperor Nero, came to the Isthmian Games one time. And he won all the gold medals. <laughs> the only person in history to win all the gold medals. In this. And he won them even though he didn't even compete in some of the contests. Because they said, you know, being the emperor, if he would have competed, he would have won anyway, right? So he won all the gold medals. No one else got a gold medal except uh, 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 Nero did in 51. Nice to be the king. That's good, yeah. So uh, as we say here... Uh, Corinth had this wicked reputation. Uh, Corinth had a reputation as one of the most wicked cities of the Roman Empire. The term to Corinthianize meant to engage in prostitution. The term Corinthian girl often was used like a prostitute. In Greek plays, Corinthians were usually represented as drunkards. Corinth contained at least 12 temples and 26 sacred places, that is, other things other than temples, devoted to the God's many and the Lord's many. Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 8, 5, he talks about the God's many and the Lord's many. The God's many are the Roman pantheon, Roman Greek, and the Lord's are like mystery religions, religions brought in from Egypt and other places. So here's the Corinthian excavations. Here's Corinth again, ancient Corinth. So we're coming from Isthmia here, we're coming from Centria here, Lechium here. Here's Acrocorinth, the mountain, the high mountain there, where the temple of Aphrodite would have been. So here we're looking down on the what remains of ancient Corinth here from Acrocorinth. So here is what remains. Here's a temple here, you can see. Here's a Roman road. This road goes to Lechium, so it went straight up to the sea. <clears throat> so here's probably what it looked like. So here's the temple of Apollo here. That's what we're seeing right here, what's left of the temple of Apollo. When the Romans came, I said they destroyed Corinth. They did not destroy that temple of They didn't destroy the temple of Apollo. They worshipped Apollo too. Uh, so this is kind of what it looked like. Here's that road, that Roman road up north to Lechium on the port there. Here would have been the Agora or the marketplace, all kinds of temples around. Here's the Bema seat. We'll see where Paul is brought before in a moment. That's still there, or parts of it. This would have been a government kind of situation, government building. So we're looking at that temple of Apollo now we're looking down from Acrocorinth. We're looking down at the excavations. Here's the, the Acrocorinth, the mountain of Acrocorinth. Here's that road. So here's this Roman road. We've seen some just like this. You can see that. Can you see the water channel there where the water runs off? 
and you collect there on the side and so forth. So there's the road, the Lechium Road. Here's shops on the North Agora here. So these would have been, remember, they would have been uh, stone buildings and some sort of wood roof generally. But, you know, there's not much of the stones left. They've been torn down. Somehow I always see these latrines everywhere we go, you remember. (laughs) We always run into those. There's the Temple of Apollo. And here is uh, Acro-Corinth. Here's looking down from Apollo from Acro-Corinth. So as I say here, the chief deity of Corinth was Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Her temple was located on top of a 1,500-foot mountain called Acro-Corinth. Beside Corinth was a center of sacred prostitution. So part of worshiping this goddess was to engage in prostitution with priestesses there, or priest, at this temple. Rightly be called a very sinful city. Now, what you see on the top of Acro-Corinth there are not the uh, uh, buildings of Paul's time. Now, later times, this, this whole place was occupied by various people, and they used it as a strategic place to fire the Turks built places. Byzantines, Christians built places up there. The Turks built places up there. Venetians. So there's where the temple of Aphrodite originally was, and there's nothing really left there. The Turks built fortifications here. There is... Uh, the temple of what's left, just some stones on the top of that temple there of Aphrodite. Um, So it says, Paul comes to Corinth. There he met a Jew, verse 2, named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Um, as I say here in verse 2, since Aquila and Priscilla were not said to have been among Paul's converts, they may have been converted in Rome. They left because of Claudius's expulsion order. We referred to that order earlier. In AD 49, the emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome because, according to Suetonius, a later Roman historian, they were constantly writhing at the instigation of Crestus. And most people think that's Christ. Most people think there was a dispute in Rome between Jews about you know whether Christ was the Messiah. This caused havoc in the synagogues. There was all kinds of turmoil. And Claudius just expelled all the Jews from Rome. So Aquila and Priscilla are forced to leave here. Remember, I had earlier hypothesized that when Paul was in Thessalonica, he may have been intending to take the Via Ignatia all the way over to Rome. But that was AD 49. If he heard about this expulsion order, he couldn't go to Rome, possibly. It's just one theory. So he goes south to Berea, which is off the road, and then down to Athens and Corinth. We'll never know for sure, but that's one theory. So uh, verse uh, 2, verse 4, Every Sabbath he, that is Paul, reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. All right, that's good. Let's stop here for tonight, and we'll pick this up, Lord willing, next week right here. All right, thank you very much.